chapter 9. I'd like you to turn to chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. And we just want to talk a little bit this morning about the covenant-keeping character of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. We just sang the song, the God of our yesterdays, the, the grace and mercy today, and we will trust you for tomorrow. And the reason that we can do that is we have a covenant-keeping God who keeps his word. In, in Romans 9, verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come. And Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not yet done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of him who works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. As we come to this section this morning, we are beginning our study in these chapters of Romans that really focus <coughs> on God's plan for the nation of Israel. You know, that's one of the questions Paul had to come back to because he said the gospel was for the Jew first and then also for the Greek. And now he's coming back to answer, what about the Jew? How does the nation of Israel and the Jewish people fit into the plan of salvation? What is God's purpose for them? And as we study these chapters, one of the things that I want to do, because we're not Jews, most of us, and we're not the nation of Israel, we are the church of Jesus Christ, the new Israel, uh, we are born again into the family of God, and much of what's said in the, these chapters do not have direct relevance to us as a, a national identity, but they do reflect the character of God, and throughout these chapters we're going to be seeing various attributes of God's character, and that affects us deeply. Because understanding the character of God is a great encouragement to our faith. So as we go through the chapter and look at the promises of God to Israel and the various things that Paul says, we're going to be also focusing on aspects of God's character that are revealed by these promises. And the first thing that I want us to touch on this morning is the covenant-keeping character of God, his covenant nature, the fact that he always keeps his word. And when he enters into a covenant, he is, he is particularly careful to keep that covenant in our regard. 
And so Paul says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. You know, there's a great heritage in Scripture about the word of God. I spoke to you last week about the fact that God cannot lie, but we actually find that explicitly stated in Scripture in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul says, uh, I am an apostle of God and I am, I am called by him. And he says in that context, God who cannot lie. So God is not able to lie. When he gives his word, because of who he is, that word cannot be broken. In fact, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until every single thing has been fulfilled. Now, we don't speak Hebrew today, and we don't understand those little dots and breathing marks and those kinds of things, but we have similar note notations in our writing. We dot our I's and we put commas after sequential phrases and things like that that are just little marks that tell us to uh, catch a breath or take a pause or whatever. And Jesus was literally saying to his listeners, not one of those little characters, not a dot, not a comma, is going to pass away from my word until it has all been fulfilled. That's pretty thorough, don't you think? That's pretty explicit that every word of the Lord is going to be fulfilled. So Paul is letting us know it is not as though the word of God has failed. Isaiah 55 is a marvelous chapter. It's that chapter that talks about, I will pour streams upon the dry ground. It's the chapter that says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. All of that is in Isaiah 55. But toward the end of the chapter, God makes this statement. He says, even as the rain comes and waters the fields and the harvest develops with the, fall of, with the falling rain and the, the, the growth occurs and the harvest comes in, so my word, which goes forth, will not return to me empty without accomplishing all that I have determined that it will do. My word will not return void. It will have produce. It will have an effect, the effect that I desire. And in 1 Kings 8.23, we read that God is a covenant-keeping God. Those specific words are used. He is a covenant-keeping God. In fact, let me read you some of the scriptures that mention God's covenant-keeping nature. Uh, these are from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindnesses Kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation to those who love him. Again, Nehemiah 9.32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you. It's interesting that this occurs in a prayer of Nehemiah. And why is he praying this? Because tough times have come. And, and they're trying to rebuild the wall. And they're in a struggle. And it looks like the nation has shrunk down to this 
puny little weakened people that can barely survive in the, the desolation that is Jerusalem. And what does, God, what does Nehemiah say? God, you're a covenant-keeping God. Remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. We appeal to you on the basis of your covenant. Why? Because God cannot break his word. He is a covenant-keeping God. Daniel says the same thing in 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said this, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Isn't it amazing in all three passages how covenant keeping and loving kindness are linked together? Isn't that cool? God is a covenant-keeping God who is motivated toward us by his loving kindness. And so the prayers of the Old Testament are often based on an appeal to the known character of God who is a covenant-keeping God. Paul wants us to know this as we begin to analyze what about the nation of Israel. We recognize that God is a covenant-keeping God. What are some of the covenants that God has established with uh, his people? One of the covenants, uh, covenant, by the way, is a special uh, term used in Scripture that goes beyond a contract or a mere agreement. It is a commitment that usually has some kind of seal or sign that is a testament that the parties have entered into uh, what is usually a permanent kind of commitment. That they have a covenant with one another that they will honor. And in that covenant, the, one of the first times we encounter it is after the flood. I said at the 8 o'clock service, when Moses took the animals onto the ark, you know that's not true, right? <laughs> Moses didn't take any animals onto the ark. I, I figured it out pretty quickly then, too. Uh, but Noah, when he took the animals onto the ark, and after the flood, and they, they've, the, the flood is over, the waters have receded, they've come down off the ark, and uh, they're ready to, to move out into the world again and populate the world again. God says to Noah in Genesis 9, verse 12, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, the rainbow, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. That's a, there's a covenant and a sign, and the sign is the rainbow. You know, we could get into some of the geology and, and physics of all of that, but if our uh, assumptions are true that the world before the flood was covered with a, a canopy of water vapor that protected the earth and made it terrarium-like, where the whole world was a moderate climate, you know, we know that because we have coal and oil at Antarctica, the continent and the South Pole underneath the ice. And how did it get there? Well, it used to grow tropical vegetation because the world wasn't like it is now. 
when that canopy broke up and, and the world was flooded with all those waters as, as the waters above the earth cascaded down, a change occurred in the atmosphere and now sunlight, which uh, before had brought light and sort of a, a global warming in a good sense, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, in a good sense, now the sun had direct access to the immediate atmosphere of the earth and created those marvelous colors that are in the clouds. And God was giving that as a testimony. He said, this will never happen again. Here's my sign, and I make a covenant and a commitment. This is not going to happen ever again. But we come to the later on in Genesis to God's promises to Abraham, and this is what Paul is going back to in this passage. You know, Abraham had other children besides Isaac. For one thing, there was Ishmael, who kind of came along as the substitute plan, which God rejected. He didn't necessarily reject Ishmael, but he said, Ishmael's not the way this is going to happen. And then Isaac later on had other wives and concubines, and he had other children. But the one that we're concerned about is Isaac, who was the son of Abraham and Sarah. And in Genesis 15, the scripture says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and said, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you, and your reward will be very great. And Abram said, What are you going to give me? I don't have any children. Eliezer is my only heir. And as it goes through the passage, <clears throat> God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'm going to give you certain land, and a child that comes forth from your own body will be your heir. And look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you can count them, so shall your descendants be. And this key verse in the Old Testament, so Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God made a promise to Abram and said, a child is going to come forth from your own body. That is going to be the child of promise. And even though you don't have an heir today, you're going to have an heir, and his offspring will be like the stars of the heavens or the sands of the seashore. You'll never be able to number the vastness of your family. It'll be a huge family. An interesting thing occurs later on in verse 18 of Genesis 15 where God says on that day the Lord made a covenant to Abram saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river the river Euphrates the Kenite the Kenizzite the Cadmonite the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite I will give you the land from the great river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. This is going to be your inheritance. And as you read that chapter, um, God entered into a covenant in a peculiar way there. Because he had Abram prepare sacrifices, and he cut them in half and laid them in halves, but then God caused Abram to go into a trance. And the reason he did that is normally two parties making this kind of agreement or covenant would prepare the sacrifices and they would both walk through the sacrifice. They would walk between the halves. 
And basically, it was a blood sacrifice, and they were saying, uh, by doing that, you know, may this happen to me if I break this covenant. May I be cut in half and laid out as a sacrifice if I break this covenant. But God didn't let <laughs> Abram walk through it. Say, so what's the deal? God caused Abram to fall into a trance, and God alone walked through it. Because he was saying, I take full responsibility to keep this covenant. I will uphold my promise to you regardless of your behavior. That's the commitment of God. I will uphold the promise. I will keep the covenant. And Abraham awoke and realized what God had done to make that commitment to him. And in this solemn covenant, God promised a certain parcel of land. How many of you, when you hear geographic landmarks, run to your globe or your atlas or look up on your map and say, what is that exactly? How many of you do that kind of thing? Oh, a few uh, inquisitive souls through there. Okay. Well, I haven't looked at that in a while, so I Googled it. You know, you've heard a lot about the Tigris and Euphrates lately. You know why you've heard about the Tigris? Because it runs through Baghdad. And Najaf is on the, the shores of the Euphrates, and both of these rivers run through Iraq. And the great river of Egypt, you don't have to be a geographic scholar to figure that one out. What is it? It's the Nile. You know what is included between the Nile and the Euphrates? Boy, if you mention this in public today, this, this morning I heard on the news that President Bush is strongly urging that it's time we have a Palestinian state and that the Jews need to do that in order to bring peace in the Middle East. And all that may be true, I don't know, that's not my problem. I'm so glad this is God's problem. But can you imagine if the president were to come out this morning and say, you know, I think we ought to give Israel all the land that God promised them. You know what it would include? All of Kuwait, all of Jordan, all of Saudi Arabia, half of Egypt, half of Syria, and half of Iraq. Whoa! He probably wouldn't live till nightfall. I mean, that's big stuff. God says, I will give you all the land from, from the Nile to the Euphrates. That includes most of the Arab lands today. And did you know that Israel has never, ever had that much land? The largest the nation of Israel ever came, became was under the kingdom of Solomon. And his Solomonic reign in that kingdom was the greatest expansion during a time of peace in the history of Israel forever. And it didn't even come close to God's solemn covenant to Abraham that I will give you and your descendants this land. So, Paul asks a very legitimate question. Has the word of God failed? Has God not kept his word? And I submit to you this morning, friends, that there are covenantal promises that are yet to be fulfilled. 
And we have a covenant-keeping God who will not break his word. There will come a day when the Jewish people, the offspring of Abraham, will inherit the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. I do not expect that to happen through political means, negotiation, or uh, any other kind of uh, peace treaty or pact. I suspect it will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ himself sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and all the nations of the world gather to do homage and bow before him. And he will then reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords for a thousand years, and he will give to Israel the land of the ancient promise because he will not break his word. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. In verse 8, Paul reminds us that not all it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as the descendants. And in some senses, Paul is saying to us, there are two things going on here. God is a covenant-keeping God who made covenants with Abraham that he will fulfill. But also, the children of Abraham are not identified merely by bloodline alone. Because Abraham had other children. And they're not in the bloodline. And then he goes on to say that even within the bloodline, there is a certain element of faith that is necessary. That key verse in verse 6 of Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Paul spent all of Romans 4 extolling the, the emphasis of that phrase, that God made a promise and Abraham believed it. And on the basis of faith, Abraham was declared righteousness. God reckoned it to him as righteousness that belief that God would honor his word. And so Paul goes on to explain to us that not only has the word of God not failed with regard to Israel, but God, a covenant-keeping God, extends the promise to those who have faith to be grafted in. We're going to see that more in, in the next chapters. But grafted into the to, to the true vine, to the true olive tree that is represented by the line of Abraham, whose offspring, true offspring, are of faith. And by the way, that's in perfect harmony with what I just said, because if you read Zechariah closely, and also the last chapters of Isaiah, particularly chapter 60 and chapter 66 in Isaiah, The scripture says, can a nation be born in a day? Can a people be brought forth all at once? And Zechariah says, they, speaking of Israel, the the natural Jews, descendants of Abraham, will look on him whom they pierced. In other words, when he appears, they will see him. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And in one day, the whole nation will believe and become born again. They will look on Jesus Christ, their King, and recognize He is Messiah, and in faith 
return to him as their coming king. The Bible paints that as a great picture when Israel is backed into a corner, surrounded by the nations of the world, down to their last option. There's no way out. There's no victory. There's no salvation. They're in a hopeless situation. And suddenly, the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah, comes through for them. And they recognize the one that they pierce. There will be the faithful in Israel in that day who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes it plain that for this season, it is not an abandonment of Israel to extend the opportunity of faith to the Gentiles. Because the basis of the covenant was not only a sense of the offspring of Abram, but it was the faith of Abraham that was the bedrock of that covenant. And those who have faith are the ones who can enter into the covenant. Friends, God throughout the scripture makes covenants with us. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. He said the righteous scepter the scepter will never depart from your bloodline. And Jesus Christ is of the lineage of David. When he reigns as king of kings, he is of the bloodline of David. When he comes back in the flesh, when he comes back, he will reign in fulfillment of that promise. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel at the mountain in the wilderness with Moses. And the covenant there was, if you will keep my word and keep my law, then I will not put any of these diseases upon you. I will be your God. I will walk with you. I will meet with you. I will fellowship with you. If you will keep my word. Of course, God knew that the nation of Israel could not do that. But part of the necessity of the unfolding plan of salvation was to allow the proof positive of that to become realized that we needed someone to do in us what we could not do for ourselves. And it was that covenant at Sinai that Jesus was referring to when he said at the Last Supper, I bring to you a new covenant. The old covenant depended on you doing your best for God. But I bring you a new covenant. And the new covenant in my blood is this. I will cleanse your sin I will remember your iniquity no more. I will put the seal of the covenant in your life, my spirit. I will cause you to be born again to a living hope. I myself will come to you by my spirit and regenerate your being, and I will live through you if you will trust me. And today still, the covenant that God has made is offered. And if we believe him, we enter into that covenant. God simply requires that we trust and believe that his word is true. And on the basis of that trust, he endeavors to keep the covenant. Hence, Paul said, I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed against that day. That God himself will uphold me with his hand that he will keep that covenant on my behalf when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ 
This morning we've just celebrated the symbols of that covenant to be reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and spilled out in the inauguration of the new covenant that we might have life. Our God is a covenant-keeping God and we can rest eternally on that fact. He will not break his word. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being a God in the heavens who owes no man anything, but has willingly entered into covenant relationship, asking only that we believe. And you yourself will promise to uphold the covenant. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.